Last week, we talked about something. What did we talk about? You might be without slides tonight. May have to do this the old-fashioned way. Okay? Got cold outside the computer froze. So, we'll do the quick recap while he's rebooting. Last week we talked about Jesus and the rich young man. Remember Jesus and the rich young man. Jesus is currently... Ah, there we go. There we go. Uh, Mental note, Joe. this, This monitor up here is all kinds of rainbow colors, so we need to fix that later, but we'll be all right. So, recap on last week. We started with Jesus and the rich young man. Jesus is, we're tracking Jesus as he moves towards Jerusalem for the last time. He's moving towards the last week of his life. He's on the road. And so what we're hitting are the encounters that he's having on the road before he gets to Jerusalem. And he encounters a rich young man who comes to him. Now, this young man is eager. He's sincere. He runs to Jesus. He falls down at Jesus' face, uh, feet, and he tells Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we're told in the passage that Jesus loved this man. He loved this man. And uh, so Jesus has this discussion with him. He says, well, you've studied the Scriptures. What does the Scripture say? And, and the young man says, quotes keeping the law, but he quotes the last half of the law, the, the part of the law where he's dealing with other people. And Jesus said, hey, you know, you just lack one thing. You don't need a million things. You don't have a 50-item checklist. You just lack one thing. And that one thing is that you need to sell everything you've got Give it to the poor, and then come follow me. You remember how the the young man reacted? What happened? He was very sad. He was very despondent, and he walked away. And he walked away. This is how he responded. And that led Jesus to talk about the dangers of riches and possessions when it comes to following Christ. Uh, And this threw the disciples for a loop. When Jesus starts talking about how dangerous riches and and, and material goods are to following him, it threw them for a loop. Why? Go ahead, I'll wait. Why? Exactly. In that culture, it was thought if you were wealthy, had lots of goods and material goods, that that was a sign of God's favor. And so Jesus basically turns that on its head and says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about the possible translations, what that meant. Uh, The word camel and the word rope are very, very similar in the language. And so it could have been that it got mistranslated and he was saying it's easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle. More likely it's talking about one of the gates in the city of Jerusalem called the eye of a needle. Very narrow and and short gate which would have been hard for a camel with lots of goods, bearing lots of goods. It would have been hard for that camel to get through that gate. 
And Jesus uses that as analogy to say it's really hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But why? Why is it that hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? You love your stuff, absolutely. We all love our stuff. You know, you get a new car, you want to keep that thing in the garage, you don't want anybody eating in it, no french fries in that car, you know, we love our stuff. You know, and I knew a guy one time that when I, when I played guitar for years and years and years, I knew a guy that he would, when he bought a new guitar, the first thing he'd do, as soon as he made the last payment on it, he would take out his pocket knife and put a nick in it. Just, ah! Who would do that? And I finally said, why do you do that? And he said, because I'm going to nick it sooner or later anyway. Now it's not going to feel so bad when I do. It's already done. I can move on. It is hard for us because our stuff gets in between us and God. And so Jesus has this conversation with him. Now Peter jumps in and reminds Jesus that he and the other disciples have, have dropped and left everything to follow him. You know, it's kind of like, hey, don't forget what we did, right? We, we left our fishing business. We left everything to follow you. And Jesus says that those who, who sacrificed for the gospel, for the kingdom's sake, will receive reward, if you will, in this world. But he said they'll receive it with persecution. You get both. It's not an either or. You get both. And, and it's really easy for us when we hit hard times or persecution to believe that we've done something wrong. God doesn't love us. He's punishing us for something. No, that's just how it works. This is how life works and this is how following Christ works. Yes, you get benefits when you follow Christ. Absolutely, but you're going to have persecution too. And so they have this great discussion based upon what happens with this rich young ruler. Um, and I've always pointed out in this story that when the rich young ruler ducks his head and walks away, Jesus never chases after him. He just doesn't. He doesn't chase after him, even though he loved him. Didn't try to change his mind, twist his arm. He let him walk. And sometimes, even when you love people, you have to let them walk. Sometimes it's just that way. And so it's good to remember that from that story. Okay, and then we went on to the second story, the parable of the vineyard workers. Now, this is, an, again, we're still on the road to Jerusalem. And, and Matthew tells us that Jesus gives this parable to explain what he meant. Right before this parable, he made this statement about the first being last and the last being first. And so Jesus immediately launches into this parable to explain what he's talking about. So in this parable, there's this rich man. He owns this vineyard. And uh, the master goes out really, really early in the morning to hire day laborers. Some of you last week said, hey, you've been in towns or places where people would come and hang around like the town square or something waiting for a job, waiting for someone to come up and pick them up for day laborers. Saw this a lot in Texas, especially in West Texas, where the migrant workers would come and they would hang out hoping that someone would pick them up for work for that day. And so this is what happens. And early in the morning, the master comes and he hires people in the, par in the marketplace, sends them out into his field and says, I'll pay you a denarius for the day's work. A denarius was a small coin, probably about the shape of a dime or a nickel, about that size. And it was a day's worth of wages. So they do that. They go out and go to work. 
about three hours later, the master goes back into the marketplace and finds more people hanging around, standing around. So he hires them and sends them out. And he keeps doing this about every three hours. Up until about an hour before quitting time, he's still hiring people and sending them out. So at quitting time, at the end of the day, he tells his foreman, I want you to bring all the people, bring all the guys together, we're going to pay them. And I want you to start with the last ones we hired. So start with the guys that only worked about an hour. So the guys that worked an hour step up, and they get a denarius. They get a full day's pay for an hour's worth of work. Now, if you're the guy that worked an hour, that's a sweet deal. If you're the guy that worked all day long, you're thinking, well, surely we're going to get a whole lot more money. And they're getting really excited. If these guys, if the hour-long worker got a denarius, we're going to get so much more. But when they come up to receive their pay, they only get a denarius too. And they were hacked. They were just mad. And you can understand that. If you'd have been in their shoes and sweat out in the fields and in the vineyards all day long, and the guy that was just there for an hour got the same pace you did, you'd be hacked too. But the master says, well, wait a minute, guys. I told you, the first ones that were hired, I told you I would pay you a denarius for your labor. And that's what I've done. I, I did exactly what I said I would do. So are you angry because you got paid what you said you were going to get paid? Or are you angry because I was generous to someone else? It's a fascinating story. It's hard to read the story and not get this sense of unfairness. But Jesus uses this parable. Remember, he's using this parable to talk about what he meant by the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I told you, I used to think that meant, well, in the end, the bad guys are going to get theirs. And those of us that have been trampled on, we're going to get elevated. That's not what this story is about at all. It really isn't. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is talking about that we are all equal recipients of the goodness and the grace of God. Even if you've come late to the party. And we've all come late to the party. Whether you're first to the party, last to the party, we're all equal recipients of this. And we should all be thankful that we don't get paid for the amount of work we really do. I'm just telling you, we are getting off way better even coming late to the party than if we were getting paid for what we deserve to be paid. So it's just a great story. It's a jarring story, kind of throws everything up on its end, but it's a great story. And then we hit these takeaways. We'll do these really quickly. One, God will call us to do hard things, but it will always be out of love and a desire to see us grow and become more. He doesn't ask us to do hard things because he's punitive. He doesn't ask us to do hard things because he just wants to see us squirm. He asked the rich young man to do a hard thing because that was the place in his life where he was stunted. That's the place that was keeping him from growing. Now, for somebody else, it might be something different. You know, we all have our little things we like to hang on to. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's time. It could be something else for somebody else. But Jesus always puts his finger on the very thing that's standing in between us and him. It's not punitive. It's just so that we can grow. 
Love does not force people into better decisions, nor does it shield people from the consequences of bad decisions. Love simply shows them a better way. The rich young ruler, the rich young man, when he walked away, Jesus didn't try to convince him, didn't try to twist his arm, didn't chase him down, didn't say, come back, you're making a bad decision. He simply showed him a better way and let him choose. And that's really hard when it's someone you love. Some of us in this room have had to watch our children take steps that we knew were disastrous, and yet love does that. God does that for His children every single day. Could He have stopped Adam and Eve? Absolutely. But if He had, that's not love. That's dictatorship. So love simply shows you a better way. And then this one. Whoever is standing, whoever or whatever we could say, is standing between you and entering into the fullness of God's kingdom is not worth it. Whatever it is, doesn't make any difference what it is. It's not worth it. Whoever, whatever is keeping you from knowing the fullness of God, it is just not worth it. One last takeaway and we'll start some new material. We are all equal recipients to God's grace and His mercy, even if we've come late to the party, and we have all come late to the party. I told you this last week. If you're a survivor of the Titanic, it doesn't make any difference whether you were saved first or last. Right? It doesn't make any difference. Just so you were. And this is kind of us and with God's grace. All right, let's do some new stuff. This evening we're going to look at this. Jesus once again discusses his death and his resurrection. Now, he's done this once before. And you would have thought that would have took, but evidently it didn't, because he has to do this one more time. We're going to be looking at the Mark passage again. Now, remember, sound like a broken record, but they're on their way to Jerusalem, and it's the last week. They're on, Jesus is on his way to die, basically. So they're headed towards Jerusalem, and he's trying to prepare them for what's going to happen when they get there. He's talked to them about this once before, and it just didn't register with them. Just bounced off their forehead. They couldn't get it. So he's trying to prepare them. So look at Mark chapter 10, and look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem was elevated. It's not a directional thing. It's an elevation thing. Jerusalem sat high, and they were going up towards Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Very specific. He doesn't just say we're getting to Jerusalem and it's going to be bad. He spells it out. Specific, and it works out just that way. Just that specifically. He couldn't have been clearer but we're told in Luke's account that the disciples were, were still not getting it. 
Now, there's a little time discrepancy here. Uh, it's interesting, when you think back to when Jesus and the disciples were going to Bethany. Remember, they were going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, although the disciples thought he was just sick and sleeping is all they thought. But when they're going to Bethany, what is the, what is the fear that the disciples have about going to raise Lazarus? Remember? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're after you. They're liable to kill you if you pass through Judea, you know. And if Lazarus is really just sick and just sleeping and he's going to be better, then why take the chance? And remember, one of the disciples finally says, when Jesus said, no, nope, we're going, he finally says, well, let's just go and die with him. Right? Kind of a sad sack disciple, isn't it? Let's just go and get it over with and die with him. Now, it's interesting that they said that. They believed they were going to die with him. But when he starts telling them he's going to die, they cannot swallow it. They just can't make that happen. It seems unfathomable to them about Jesus being killed and the manner in which he described it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was, you know, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's got this great following. Crowds of people are beginning to gather. As he gets closer to Jerusalem, the crowd just begins to grow and grow. People just begin to connect and glom on, and it's just growing. And so maybe all the crowds and all the excitement, maybe it just went to their head, and they thought, you know, this is going to turn out a different way. Maybe it really is the Messiah. Maybe this is our chance. Surely it'll be different. I don't know. Maybe that was it. And yet, despite the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead, even after four days, they could not fathom that he would raise from the dead. They couldn't fathom that he'd be killed to start with, let alone raised from the dead. And so, these disciples who are the chosen ones, they are the choice. These are the ones Jesus handpicked are still struggling with stuff. They still can't figure it out. You know, they're, they're afraid they're going to get killed on one hand, then they think, nope, he's the Messiah. Everything's going to go okay. What do you mean you're going to raise yourself from the dead? And yet, Lazarus was raised from... They're, they're just confused. And it's not going to get any better as they get closer to Jerusalem. But Jesus just keeps telling them. And he gets more and more plain the closer they get. So, let's go to this next event. There's this request for the prominent place in his kingdom. Now, again, they're on the road to Jerusalem. It's a final week before crucifixion. They're going to be there at Passover. And so then this happens. We're staying in Mark. Look at Mark 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Any of your kids ever ask that question? I want to ask you a question and it doesn't make any difference what I ask you. I want you to do it. Who's going to take that bet, right? So that's just kind of an odd way to lead off for it. We want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. Verse 36. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, in Matthew's account 
It's a little different in Matthew's account. In Matthew's account, we're told that it's actually the mother of James and John who come and make this request, which seems a little wimpy to me to have to get your mom to come and do that, you know? Uh, But that's what we're told in Matthew's account. And what's striking about this request is that Jesus had just told them he was going to die. He just told them he was going to be executed And they're still asking for the right hand and the left hand in the messianic kingdom. They still didn't get it. I mean, you got all, remember, you got all these crowds and all this excitement and we're going to Jerusalem. And remember all the prophecies about the Messiah entering into Jerusalem. And and it may have gotten the best of them. And they're thinking, okay, here we go. This is it. And so we better get our place. And they jockey for these positions, whether it's them that's asking or mom and If it was me, I'd rather not my mom be asking for that. Uh, Why would they have made this kind of request at this time? Why? Yeah, they want want to be a part of the the in crowd. They They want to be a part of the leadership. Maybe they're denying what's going to happen to him. I mean, they don't want to be left out. Absolutely. Remember, the word Messiah means anointed one. And when you anointed somebody, you were anointing them for a kingship. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, they're expecting him to be king. Their, their hopes... And the hopes of all the Jews was that the Messiah would come in and give them back the kingdom and they would rule again and they wouldn't be enslaved by anybody or ruled over by anybody. And, and it looked like this is what's happening. As they get closer to Jerusalem and the crowds get bigger and bigger, it looks like this is what's happening. And so maybe that was just enough to make them ignore Jesus' words about being executed. They're caught up in this messianic fervor, if you will. Uh, but look at Jesus' response in verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And so Jesus tells them, You don't have a clue. You do not get it yet. And he asked them if he can drink of the cup he's going to drink and be baptized with the baptism he's going to be baptized with. What's he talking about? Hmm? His death. He's talking about what's to come. Remember in the garden, Jesus prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's tied with this. That's the cup. The cup of sorrow, if you will. And he's basically saying, you don't get it. You don't have a clue. You think we're coming in and kicking out the Romans and starting over fresh. And that's not how it's going to go down. And so he says, can you really do this? And they think they can. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said to them, and, and, excuse me, and they said to him, we are able... And Jesus said, 
The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus indicates to them, yeah, you will do this. I don't think they had a clue what that meant. You know. But he said, yeah, you will. Basically, you will experience the same sorrow. You will be put to death for the kingdom. But that doesn't mean you get to choose those places. The Father gets to choose those places is basically what he's saying. Yes? The, the cup talks about basically his passion, his sorrow. And, and when, remember in the garden when Jesus asked the Father, let this cup pass from me? Well, but remember the cup is, in the Last Supper, Jesus is going to use the cup as a symbol of his blood, of his torture, of his death, basically. Remember, just like the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost for the exodus so that the death angel would pass over. And so Jesus is basically saying, there's this cup of sorrow. There's this cup of suffering. There's this cup of torture, if you will. Are you going to be willing to drink it? And they said, yep, you bet. And they would. They just didn't really understand what that meant at the time. Um, but this is where the real fun starts. This is where the fun starts. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, what does that one little verse tell you? <laughs> yeah, somebody else. What's it tell you? There's a lot in that little verse. They were jealous. You know, we like to think of, uh, we like to picture the disciples as, you know, walking around in these robes, their feet are not dirty, their face is glowing, they're singing kumbaya, you know, they're praying, they're, that's not who this group of people were. It, it is not who they were, they had ambitions, they were jealous, they had insecurities, they were a motley crew, they were not the people you would pick on your team. They fought between themselves. James and John were called the sons of thunder. You had a thief in the group? This was not the A-team, by all practical appearances. Uh, if you've ever raised more than one child, you know this struggle about, well, but they got to, why can't I? Why should they get to do this and me not get to do that? Are they really your favorite? This is the disciples. These are the hand-picked crew. I love this because we are the same way. We're a pretty ragtag crew if you stop and think about it. I mean, if you don't believe it, just kind of really discreetly, don't draw attention to yourself, but just kind of glance around the room a little bit. You know, just do it when no one's looking, but we are a motley crew. We really are. Uh, and so, 
Jesus sees things are starting to get a little out of hand, and, and he has to step into the situation. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You hear the theme again? Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave. He, he's basically pointing out that if you want to achieve greatness, you can't do it the way the world does. Greatness doesn't come from more authority. It comes from more service. Where do you see this happen? Where does Jesus demonstrate this? Think of some places you see Jesus demonstrate this. Pardon? Last Supper. How so? Yeah, when he washes their feet. He takes a towel. They're all busy kind of jockeying for position around the table. He takes a bowl and a towel and washes their feet. You see this in the crucifixion. You see this after the resurrection. You know, when if I had resurrected from the dead and I saw my disciples, I, I would be saying, ah, look at this, look at this. You see this? And when he finds them out fishing, what's he do? He cooks a meal for them. This is his way of life. This is the way of life he's given to us. And yet we're like the disciples. We jockey for position. You know? We, we think we deserve things. I've been at this church for 35 years. How dare they change the music on me? Right? It's kind of the same deal. Right? I remember when I used to be able to find a parking place here, but now I have to park like way out there. That's not right. We jockey for position. What? Get off your toes. <laughs> well, I got on mine before I got on yours, so we're in it together. You know, we, we are like the disciples. And that's what I want you to see with the disciples is we're no different. They're no different. This is how we are. And uh, just like the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, that's our, that's our job. That's our job. And can I just tell you, with, hopefully without getting on too big of a soapbox here, that's kind of a lost art. It really is. It's kind of a lost art. As, as I look, and now I'm going to sound like the old man in, in the room, and you'll just have to forgive me because probably everybody has said this. But as I look at the generations coming up behind me, service does not seem to be high on the list. And it, it worries me. Of course, my father probably worried about the same thing with me. I don't know. Uh, but this act of humility and service It, it's, it's different. It's different. If, if, you, if, if we had to clean this room tonight, you know who would be quick to serve? The older people. Now I really sound old, actually. Uh, 
It's just different. Watch it. And, and this is what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples. If you want to be really great, be the least among you, not the best among you. Be the servant, not the director. Don't be the administrator. Be the, you know one of the best things I did when I quit the oil field and went to seminary? I had to get a job to help make ends meet. I was a janitor in the children's building on campus. I vacuumed floors. I cleaned toilets. Uh, that was good for me. One, it kept me humble. Uh, and, and two, it kept me enjoying the little things. And so when we stop serving, we stop being like the disciples that Jesus called us to be. We stop being like Christ when we stop serving. Okay, I've gone to meddling. I'll quit. Um, yeah, I think we better save the next story until next week. Uh, that's a lot of story to get through. Let's do a few takeaways. Let's do a few takeaways. I'm going to skip through. Next week we'll cover these things. Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about some other things, but that story is a long one. So let's do this. Greatness doesn't come from more authority. It comes from more service. That's just what we've been talking about. Uh, We'll also talk about Zacchaeus next week, which is one of my favorite stories. Greatness doesn't come from more authority. It comes from more service. So if that is true, why do most people strive for more authority? More money. Yeah, a lot of times. Pardon? Power. Yes, which is even more intoxicating than money, if there's possible. You know where you see this the most? Marriage. I'm just telling you, that's where you see it the most. It's about who gets to call the shots, who's right, who's wrong, who listens to who, who has the most power, who feels like a servant. It's all about that. Marriage is meant to be a contest, but not the kind of contest we make it out to be. I mean, people show up in my office all the time because they're in a contest with one another. Marriage is supposed to be a contest about who can outserve the other, who can outsacrifice the other. And I will not tell you I'm very good at that. My wife would really tell you I'm not very good at that. But that's what it's meant to be. And so if we can't find it in our own marriages, how do we find it out in public? And how do we find it in service to Christ? So greatness doesn't come from more authority. It comes from more service. If you want to model for greatness, take your cues from a poor carpenter who didn't own anything and humbled himself and sacrificed himself in order to serve others. That's the example for greatness right there. It's not Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and all those people. It's not that. It's that, the poor carpenter. 
All right, we got a little bit of time. I'll let you out a little bit early. Questions, comments? I'd love to get into some more stories, but we can't this evening with the amount of time we got. What do you think? Yes, ma'am. That's a, that's a big chore to take on that many exchange students, especially when it's not your idea. Yeah. It's like God rings the doorbell, leaves the basket in front of the door, right? But it's never convenient. No. It's never And we'll see some stories next week about uh, how Jesus handled the inconvenient. Um, Yes, yes. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> back to marriage, it's kind of like marriage. You don't figure out how hard it's going to be until after you say yes. <laughs> Seems a little bit like a bait and switch to me, but that's the way it works. Anyone else? Yeah, yeah. it's really easy to read these stories about the disciples and say, how can you be so stupid? Uh, and yet we are, because we even have more information than they had. And we struggle just like they do, so really they're better off than we were. They had less information than we did and acted in faith more than we do when we know the whole story. Someone else? Yes. Humbling yourself is hard. No one signs up for that. No, one's, no one gets in the line and says, yes, I want to be humbled, please. No one does that. But you're right. It's almost like exercise. You don't want to do it, but once you do it, you feel better. Humility is the same way. That's a great point. Anyone else? Especially with um, 
humbling and you know who's going to be higher in the kingdom like when you look at revelation and the, the nicolaitans how you know they just they told the church like don't try to be higher than like certain leaders in the church they even are like referenced sometimes throughout the gospels like this particular person thought he was higher in the church and he you know mm-hmm. tried to like take over and they said you know everyone's equal in god's eyes and like they really stress that and i think it's really interesting to me how you see how in the beginning like they wanted they thought they would be better and they yeah. wanted to be high in the kingdom and then when you look like in revelation they're they're abusing the church they're telling the church like we need to humble ourselves we all need to so possibly this is a maturing process. Possibly it's a mature. I mean, let's face it. Before I had kids, I knew everything there was to know about parenting, right? Until you have kids. And then the longer you have kids, the less you know. I felt the same way when I went to seminary. I thought, I got this stuff figured out. And the longer I went through grad school, the stupider I felt. It's a maturing process. And so you start off wanting to be this great thing and later on you find out if I can just be a lowly servant that's good yeah I think so I think that's a part of the maturing I still have a lot of maturing to do too one thing we don't as um, modern people we don't realize what a horrible job that was washing people's <laughs> yes Yeah. And so here is Jesus not washing one guy's feet, but a dozen. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like these feet came out of shoes and socks, right? Yeah. Yeah, washing feet was not that that pleasant. Yes, ma'am. good point although there are some people that are a little more difficult to love than others but you can do it yeah yeah I feel most of the time like the spiritual pygmy among spiritual giants and that's probably best for me to feel that way all right we need to close let's let's close in prayer Father, I'm grateful for this evening. I'm grateful for these brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm grateful for your word. Uh, And I'm grateful more than anything for your patience and your persistence and your grace and your mercy because I am absolutely sure I tax them most every day. I see myself in the disciples so much. I I find myself critiquing them and then being caught in my own arrogance. Father, we are just so clueless most of the time. But we know that you love us. We have the example that you led with your life, with your death, with your resurrection. 
And we need to be taking our cues from you. More than the world, sometimes more than church, we need to take them from you. Be the servants, the humble servants you've called us to be. And so somehow this week, Father, show us the place and the space to step up and do that. And give us the grace to follow through. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.